Go for it. If I can read my writing. <laughs> uh, you said that there have been changes in the meaning of words since the King James uh, Version was translated. Could you give some examples? <laughs> um, I, I can. One. Not yeah, that one. Not the one. <laughs> so I was telling Jeff that, that I think this question came because uh, a, a few nights ago when we were talking about death, um, I mentioned this, this uh, word in the King James Version is translated as spirit, but the actual word is ruach and means breath and, or wind. And, uh, and so sometimes we can get kind of confused because how they've translated something back in the day isn't necessarily what that thing means today. And, uh, and, and I said, if there's, you know, ask me later and I'll tell you an interesting example. And I, I, I still can't tell you that example because it's, uh, well, it's just not appropriate for, uh, uh, for, for a public audience like this. But I will give you some examples and you can sit down if you want, Jeff. Well, also, just one more thing. I would oh, yeah. like to know, did anybody bring a banana cream pie tonight? <laughs> <laughs> I heard at least two people thought about it. Okay, so uh, let's just clarify something. The King James Version was written how many years ago? It was 1600s, right? So that's a solid 400 years ago. 400 years. So the... The, the language of the King James Version is the same language that you'd find in Shakespeare. It's early modern English, which means that you and I can read it and understand it. Most of the, the words are even spelled the same. Uh, sentence structure is fairly similar. If you go back very much farther than that, then English actually sounds like a completely foreign language, which you've probably seen before. It's not a new idea to you. So um, the King James Version has some differences. Um, it uses some personal pronouns that some people find um, endearing, things like thee and thou, and you might hear somebody pray with these and thous. It, just so you know, it doesn't make it a holier prayer if you use thee and thou for pronouns. Um, so you don't have to use that, but if you want to, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. God still understands. Um, there are some things in the King James Version that can be a challenge for modern readers, and this challenge doesn't mean that the King James Version is a bad version. Uh, we'll come back to that in a minute, though. But let me give you a few examples. In Numbers 23, 22, it refers to a unicorn. Now, it's not talking about the mythical creature that, uh, according to my daughter, has, has a, a, a rainbow-colored horn coming off its forehead. That is not what the King James Version is talking about. Instead, a, a, a translation that would make sense for us might be a wild ox. Okay, so wild ox, fine. They used unicorn. As long as you have some kind of reference point for that and know that it's not a unicorn, it's not a big deal, right? Matthew 6, 6, Jesus talks about entering your closet to pray. And for various reasons, um, the, the word back in the day did not mean what it means today. In fact, in the 1600s, there weren't very many closets as we know of them today. Usually there was some armoire or something like that, but um, today we have a walk-in closet. We have a clothes closet, and, uh, you know, a, depending on where you live, you might have a water closet, <laughs> right? So there's all kinds of closets today that, that just didn't make any, it, it wasn't the same kind of context that it was being written about in, in 400 years ago. So um, when it says enter your closet to pray, it's really just saying any private room where you can pray by yourself. 
in 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul says, Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. And this doesn't mean that you should, like, check them off and say, yep, reading and doctrine and, and exhortation are here. They're present for class. That's kind of what, that's kind of what it means today to, uh, to take attendance or something. But um, what it meant back then was to, to give your attention to or apply yourself to something. And so a better translation for us today would be to give attention to reading exhortation and doctrine. And of course, if you read this in context, you're probably going to get the meaning of that word. It's probably going to make sense. But some of them can be like, what? What is he saying? One that I particularly like is the, the use of the word bowels in the Bible. Um, so, for example, in Philippians 1.8, Paul says, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you, how greatly I long after you in the bowels of Jesus Christ. This is not saying that Paul is somehow in Jesus' gut longing for the people. What it's saying is, well, the, the word bowels at the time had something to do with like strong emotions and, and, and um, compassion and things like that. And so what he's really saying is, I long after you with the compassion of Jesus or the, or the deep emotion of Jesus. That makes a lot more sense. In Philippians 4, 6, Paul encourages us to be careful for nothing. And if I were to tell my son that, he would think that he doesn't have to be careful anymore. But that's not what careful meant at the time. Careful meant to, to, not, to be anxious or to be full of care. And, uh, and so when he says, be careful for nothing, he's saying, don't be anxious for anything. And of course, some modern translations will use that word, don't be anxious. Other examples include charger, which you and I would think is uh, something to charge your phone with, but uh, back in the day, it referred to a plate or a platter of some kind, um, like John the Baptist's head was carried on. So, um, or the, the word conclude, today it means to come to a conclusion or to, to have some kind of determination about something, but that meant, back then it just meant to, to shut up or enclose, to cover, to conclude, or to faint. Of course, uh, today we'd think of fainting as passing out, but back then it was to be discouraged or to lose your confidence. So, lots of different words mean different things. And then there's words that just don't exist anymore. They're obsolete in the English language. We don't use them very often. For example, anon. Okay, so I guess we do use that one, but not exactly in the same way. At the time, it just meant immediately or at once, anon. But today, it's just an abbreviation for anonymous. Beray, um, broid, chambering, ensample, these are words that are are out of sync with our current use of the English language. They still mean things, but nobody uses them, and so you have to go and dig for what they used to mean. Or this one's good, flux. It's a word we don't generally use in the English language unless you um, like the Back to the, the Future movies where you have the flux capacitor. <laughs> but um, generally, it doesn't, doesn't mean anything to us. Back then, it meant dysentery. Or there's furlong, or happily, or lucre, or meet. Oh, well, okay, we could have a meetup, but back then it just meant fitting, or suitable, or appropriate. We, we just don't use the word in that way at all. Peradventure, or prick. Okay, so um, you can prick your finger, but in, in the, at that time it was a, a, something to poke things with, a prod, or something like that. And of course, there's also the demeaning, derogatory term uh, that you could use it in. Then there's scrip or tro or twain or usury or untoward or want or what. Yeah, W-O-T, what. 
<laughs> Great words. And if you love the English language, then you probably really enjoy Shakespearean early modern English. And, uh, and the King James Version is a delightful translation. And, and trust me, it, it is a good, solid translation and one that you can read. What I would encourage you to do, though, and you should really do this with any translation, but don't just go to the Bible and assume you know what it means, don't, especially an older translation like the King James. Don't just read a word and be like, oh, I know what that means, because you might not. Um, so you can get a um, turn-of-the-century Oxford Dictionary, and it'll have meanings for, for words that are very similar to what the meaning was intended to be when the King James Version translators translated it. And uh, just, just look around for something. It's like the early 1900s or late 1800s dictionary, Oxford Dictionary. And you can get them for like 30 bucks. And so if you have your King James Bible, you got your Oxford Dictionary there. And uh, add a Strong's Concordance to the list, and you'll be able to look up some of the Hebrew and Greek words, and, and you're, you're going to be really well set. <coughs> but then there's, uh, there, there's uh, always this uh, wise man in Ecclesiastes who says this, "'Of making many books there is no end.'" And much study is wearisome to the flesh. I would encourage you, don't weary yourself. If it's a struggle for you to study the King James Version, get a couple good modern translations. I like the English Standard. It's a nice, um, solid, um, literal word-for-word translation, and it and it's, uh, reads very nicely. Um, you might get the New Living Translation, which is an update to the King James Version. It was intended to be an update to the King James. Um, but it's, it's not the same kind of word-for-word of, um, word translation as the King James. It's more of a thought-for-thought thought translation. And if, if you take those two, um, maybe the Engli- English Standard and the New, Li- Li- New Living Translation, and you do comparisons and maybe have the King James uh, there as well, you'll end up understanding pretty much everything in the Bible. I would caution, though, a thought-for-thought translation, whether it's the New Living or the New International or a variety of others, um, the Christian Standard Bible, they they don't do prophecy very well. So if you brought your New Living translation today, um, you might not see the exact same things as the original authors had in mind, um, which isn't a problem for the translation. Just just don't, don't use them to study prophecy is all. Okay, Hopefully that answered the question and uh, didn't cast any disparaging thoughts on the King James Version because that's not my intention. Tonight, our subject is a desolate planet. What happens when God brings the, the saints to heaven? And why does the Bible describe an earth that seems desolate? Um, we're going to study that tonight. Tuesday night, how to postpone your funeral. I'm not quite sure what happened. It just died. Well, anyway, Tuesday night, how to postpone your funeral. And uh, this one, it's not a gimmick. It's biblical stuff. Um, The return of the woman is going to be later, but uh, Wednesday night is the return of the woman. And that one's going to be a look back at Revelation 12. We did a little bit of looking in there and we're going to look there again. And we're going to find that 1260 year period and what happens to the woman after she's been been, um, fleeing to the wilderness for that 1260 years. Um, Then on Friday night, the Mark of the Beast, one of the most hotly talked about and speculated subject in the Bible. 666 and barcodes and all those other things. Um, I've heard so many different ideas about the Mark of the Beast. And we get to look at Revelation 13 and explore that. And we also get to find something new 
This is a, a second beast in Revelation chapter 13. The first one we talked about a, a few days ago, and it came up from the water. And, and remember, what, what was the water? People and nations and tribes and king, you know, kingdoms, right? So, the second beast in Revelation 13 comes up from the land, and we'll, have, we'll get to talk about that. Um, so, that's um, Friday night, the mark of the beast. Then on Saturday morning, 1045... Uh, we're going to talk about the testimony of Jesus. There's that verse in Revelation 12, 17 and 14, 12. Um, they basically say the same thing, talking about God's people. They say they'll keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus or the testimony of Jesus. And what is that? What is the testimony of Jesus? Because if this is a description of God's people at the end of time, you and I should probably understand that and figure it out. We'd like to be those people at the end of time. At least I would, wouldn't you? So let's figure that out. Um, that's Saturday morning, 10.45, and it, hopefully that fits into your schedule. If it doesn't, um, then ask me about it, and I will make sure that you get a copy um, of, of any of the episodes or the, the messages that you haven't heard. We've recorded them all on audio, and I've got a, I, can, I can send you a link um, to where to find those. Um, all right, so then, well, there's one more after testimony of Jesus. Next Saturday night, this coming Saturday night at seven o'clock will be our last, our last message in Discovering Revelation, and it's called The Last Night on Earth, and hopefully you'll be there for that. Tonight our subject is a desolate planet, and let's pray again. Father in heaven, as we open your word, we ask for guidance. Please touch my lips and let what I say be a demonstration of who you really are. Let it be the, the real thing and not just something I've made up. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Quite a few years ago, something very strange happened at the Smith Barney Investment Company. Every single one of their customers made $19 million in just a few moments. $19 million. It happened because of the Y2K crisis. And you remember that, right? Back in 1999, people were worried that all the world's computers were going to crash at midnight on New Year's Eve. And do you remember why that was? Had something to do with dates, right? Um, It's because the computers used to keep track of the dates with uh, six digits, just like this one. This is um, uh, January 1, 1999. So you see the 99, that's the year, and then the 01, that's the, the, the month. And then the 01 is the date, so January 1, 1999. But um, that system was great until you get to 2000. And as soon as, as soon as that would flip the switch, the computer wouldn't have any, any idea what year it was. Was it 1900 or 2000? Because it would go from 99 to 00 as the, the year for that date. And so as a result, there's all kinds of... of um, concerning uh, issues from banks, which really need to figure out things like uh, interest and things like this based on dates, to um, companies that, that, that schedule things, um, whether it's manufacturing or, or maybe uh, the, the locks on a dam that are controlled by a computer. Like, these things are going to matter. Um, and, and so, people were pretty worried. And when you think about it, the, the, the whole transition from 99 
1999 to 2000 is kind of a big deal. It only happens once in a thousand years, once in a millennium. And because the millennium was on people's minds in 1999, you heard quite a lot about this prophetic stuff. You know, the Bible talks about the millennium, right? So, so people were thinking maybe this is an apocalyptic thing. Maybe Jesus was going to come or the tribulation was going to start or whatever. Well, um, the Smith-Barney Corporation was looking at this problem, and they weren't really thinking about the biblical side of things, but they were looking at the financial issue, and uh, they said, you know what, we've got a solution. Let's just fix it so that our computers track the date based on a four-digit year. So instead of six numbers for a date, it would be eight numbers for a date. And now you can track, well, any millennium would be fine, right? So 2000, and instead of 99, this date would be um, 1999, right? But look at that number. You see that one nine, and then if you just put zeros there, it'd be zero 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 zero. What what is that? Nineteen million, right? <laughs> and their programmers, while they were while they were busy fixing the Y two K problem, accidentally deposited nineteen million dollars into every single one of their their investor accounts. That was an oops. Unfortunately, they didn't have this uh, banking and rapid trans- transfer stuff, and, and, and somebody wasn't sitting there looking at their bank account at three in the morning, because if they were, they would have been a millionaire and maybe could have transferred that money out quickly, but uh, they, by morning, had fixed the problem, and that $19 million had disappeared again, unfortunately. The Y2K crisis was a huge story. I remember my dad was a programmer at the time, and they took him off doing all the other stuff that he was doing, and they put him for a year, the whole year of 1999. He worked on, on doing that, the changes to all of their computer systems in the, in the manufacturing company that he worked in, and to testing every single piece of software and every system against every imaginable problem that they could have. So by the time they got to Y2K, there was no problem at all. He had figured it out, and, and everything went just swimmingly at the time. And historically, though, we've seen that, uh, that these millennium changes kind of are really great opportunities for people to think about the end of time. And, and there was a lot of talk about the, the end of time and, and Jesus' second coming at the turn of the first millennium, at 1000 A.D., And so it wasn't surprising that in 1999, there was a lot of talk about it again. But here's the interesting part. You can search the Bible from cover to cover, and you will never find the word millennium. It's not in the Bible. It's not a Greek word. It's not a Hebrew word. In fact, it's an Italian or a Latin word, and it means means a thousand years. And a thousand years, that's something you can find in the Bible. In Revelation 20, verses 7 and 8, Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. So, Bible prophecy predicts this thousand-year time period, and it says that after the thousand years, Satan is released from prison. So, what in the world does that mean? Is Satan in prison? What kind of prison? Where is this prison? How did he get into prison? Right? There's all kinds of interesting questions, which we'll answer as we go. But um, tonight, 
we're going to let God explain it. We're going to start from the beginning, and we're going to figure out this whole thing, the thousand years, what's happening around this thousand years at the beginning and end and stuff. We're going to figure out where Satan is and what this prison is, and we're going to find it from the Bible. But before we get into that, we really need to, to start with a reminder of the promise of Jesus from John chapter 14. He says, "'Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me.'" In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Let's just think about what we we just read. Where did Jesus go? Where did Jesus go? He says, I go to prepare a place for you. Where did he go? He went to heaven, all right? And, and what's he doing there? He says he's preparing a place for us. There's a very specific thing that Jesus is doing. And then he says, in my Father's house are many mansions. Um, this is one of those phrases that you need a dictionary for um, because the, the original word there isn't mansions. It's dwelling places because he says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. And, and what he's saying is, I'm making a room for you. I'm making a space for you to live with my Father in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean that, uh, that the, the song, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop is a bad song to sing. It's a great song. Whether it's God's mansion that you get to live in and you've got a room in, or a mansion all your own is immaterial, God's got a mansion for you. And, and then it, it asks this question, where when do we get to, to, to get to this place? When do we get to inhabit these dwelling places that Jesus is making for us? And the answer would be at the second coming. And we find this in 1 Thessalonians 4. We've come, we've come to this verse several times, so it shouldn't be a new one. This we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now you'll notice that we meet Jesus in the air. There's something significant about this. Remember when Jesus said, if they say he's in the, 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 the private room, don't go. If they say he's out in the desert, don't go. Why? These are false Christs, he says. And one of the reasons that we know they're false is because they're standing on the ground out there in in the desert, or they're standing in a room. Jesus says when, when he comes the second time, he's not going to put his feet on this earth. He's going to be in the air, and we're going to rise to meet him there. In fact, the angels, when Jesus rose up into heaven... Um, they, they describe Jesus coming in like manner, in the same way. He's going to come back down the way he went up, but he's going to stop. He's going to pause somewhere above the earth, and we're going to get to rise like Jesus did and ascend with him to heaven. Now, there's, a, there's something I want you to think about. I'm not sure why it's doing this. <laughs> when we finally get there, what do you think we're going to be doing? What what are we going to do in heaven? Are we going to be hanging out on clouds and playing harps? Is that how we're going to be doing the things? Honestly, I think if we did that, um, 
it might be interesting for a few days. We could probably stretch it to a few months, you know, because in heaven we'll be very, very patient. (laughs) But at some point, sitting on clouds and playing harps is going to get really boring. So if that's what we're going to do, then that doesn't sound like a, a delightful experience to me. But the Bible actually gives us quite a lot of interesting things that we're going to be doing. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? We're going to do what? We're going to judge. That's an interesting thing. Now, now this is a this is a fascinating subject and one that we could dive into at great length. We're just going to touch on it, and because the Bible says that we're going to do it, um, we're going to say we're going to do it, and and then we'll add a bit of detail to it. And if you want to study this more, I'd love to to give you a resource or, or two and, and maybe some suggestions, but uh, how to, to, to dive deeper into this. But when you think about this, do you feel qualified to judge angels? Not me. I, I don't feel qualified to judge angels. Um, so I, I understand that the Bible says that, but it's a little bit disconcerting, to be honest. And, and here's how the Bible describes it. When we finally get to heaven, God's going to open the books and, he, and we're going to get to see everything. We're going to get to see the decisions that people have made, the decisions that angels have made, the way that God's interacted with them, the final conclusion that God has come to, that their decision was this and God agreed with it. Look at what Revelation 20 verse 4 says, and I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was committed to them and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There's that thousand years again. It says that we're going to live and reign with Christ. And during that time, we'll be judging. And in just a few verses later, it says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books of life according to their works. Now, I want you to pay attention to this, because the saints are living and reigning, living and reigning. Okay? So, when it talks about the books being opened and the dead being judged, who are the dead? If the saints are living and reigning, who are the dead? The, the not saints, right? <laughs> if you're doing a math problem, <laughs> then this would be the not saints. Um, so, so it's not too hard to figure out who they are. This, these are the wicked. You and I, we're going to come up in the resurrection. We're going to be raised to, to meet Jesus in the air. We're going to go back to heaven. He's going to open the books, and we're going to be able to look at them. And the ones that we're going to be able to judge are the ones who aren't there. It appears that God lets us see everything, too. And why would He not? You see, when we look at this scenario, we're not really judging the dead because they've already been judged. Judgment is finished. What we're judging is the judge. We are looking at the judgments of God. We're examining who God is and how He relates to, to, to the, the sin problem and if His judgments are righteous or not. We get to be a jury, you might say. And, and let's say that you're there in heaven and you, um, you find yourself next door or just down the hall from somebody that on earth was 
a hated enemy. Hopefully you, you forgave them and, and got over the hate part. But, you know, somebody that was just not, you didn't connect with at all, and you thought would never be in heaven, but they're down the hall from you. Well, it might be good to understand why. And you might be going to those books and saying, you know, what, what did God do here? Or maybe more importantly, maybe your parents or your child, your grandparent or your friend next door who you thought should be in heaven, isn't. And if you don't get your questions answered, then there's a nagging thought in the back of your mind for all eternity that God is not fair. Maybe you're in heaven and you're like, oh, I kind of didn't expect this. (laughs) Why, Why did you choose this, God? Help me understand how you related to my life. The fact is that God's not afraid of the truth. He is not like the devil who wants to deceive and and hide things. He's not into subterfuge. He's into exposing truth. He even says, I am the truth. So he's not afraid of, of showing us what the real deal is. And so he opens the books. He says, take a look for yourself. See if you think I did the right thing. And I want you to look at all the evidence, explore everything, take as much time as you need. We've got a thousand years to figure this out. So we check the books, we examine the evidence, and, and I think that, uh, I think we're going to conclude that God did the right thing. And this isn't a new concept, by the way. I'm not making this up, and neither was Paul. It's not just some fanciful idea about the future. It's just the way God works. When, when uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were going to come under punishment, judgment was going to happen on Sodom and Gomorrah, God didn't just do it. He actually came down and involved a human in the process. Abraham got to hear about this judgment that was about to happen, and God interacts with him and asks him some questions, and well, Abraham has the questions, I should say. Abraham asks God some questions. What if there's 50 righteous? What if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? What if there's 10? What if there's just five? And at each question, God said, I will spare this city for just five righteous. Maybe it was 10, just 10 righteous. Anyway, it got down to a small number. And, and Abraham got his questions answered. And I think the same is going to be true for you and me. See if I really am what I've claimed to be. God is not afraid to have us look. And you'll find in Revelation 15 that the result of this investigation, this, this um, judgment that we do, is this group of people. It says that they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, "'Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name?' Meaning your character and say, "'Wow, this is amazing. You did the right thing.'" And it keeps going, for you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. That means on display, put on display. Your judgments have been shown to us, and we have said that your character is beautiful, glorified. The conclusion is that every decision God made is a good decision. God did the right thing in the judgment. And when you look at your own life, you look back, you see what God's done, 
Maybe today you're like, God, why? Why did you do this? Why not that? Um, but, but in that moment, when you see what all the evidence is in your life, you're going to look back on those things and you're going to see why God made those choices in your life. And you're going to say that you wouldn't change a thing, that God did exactly the right thing in relating to you. But let's slow down a bit. Let's, let's just see how this whole thing works. Um, kind of put it into a timeline and figure it out. Um, and, and let's start in Isaiah 25, 9. It will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. Who says this? Th- these are, there's just two groups of people when Jesus comes, just two groups. There's this group and it says, they say, this is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. These are the people that are standing there with their arms up and their, their faces to the sky saying, yes, Jesus is finally here. He's come, just like he said. And then there's that other group of people, and it's described in one of the most tragic passages in the Bible in Revelation 6, 15 and 16. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. We've looked at this verse before because it just seems ridiculous. The wrath of the Lamb? Really? And yet these people are so afraid of God. They've got in their head that God is a bad God, that He's a narcissist, that He's controlling, that He's, right, that He judges them. And so they want to hide from the wrath, what they perceive as the wrath of the Lamb. These people are, aren't ready. They, they did nothing. When Jesus pursued them with His grace, they rejected Him. They pushed Him off. They said, not now, another, another time maybe. To please go away. Stop bugging me. They don't keep the commandments. They don't have the faith of Jesus. And so what happens to these people? Listen carefully in Revelation 19, verse 5. Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. This is a description of, of Jesus sitting on the, 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 the horse, the white horse there, and he's come with judgment. And it says that out of his mouth proceeds a sharp sword. Now, can you tell me, what does a sword represent? What is this talking about? You mean Jesus isn't uh, one of those sword swallowers and he's just coughing it back up? No, no, that's not what's going on here. It's, it's definitely a symbol, and it's talking about the Bible. Hebrews 4.12 calls God's Word a sharp two-edged sword, and Ephesians 6 calls it the sword of the Spirit. So when it says that Jesus comes with a sharp sword coming out of His mouth, what's coming out of His mouth? The Word of God. Here's a, a really important point. On that day, you and I are not going to be um, our, our, our situation isn't going to be decided by our words. It's not going to be decided by your neighbor's word or your parent's word, certainly not by my word or your preacher's word. It's going to be decided on God's word. And that's a really important thing for us to recognize. What did God say is the big question. And so when He comes, these decisions are final. The word of God comes and it divides It divides in two. The two camps we've talked about, from Cain and Abel on, two camps, those who follow the lamb and those who follow the dragon, and the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth cuts those two camps in two decisively. 
And then it goes on and it says, and the rest were killed. Whoops. The rest were, um, it goes a sharp sword that he should strike the nations and the rest were killed with a sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. You know what's unfortunate about this is that it, it didn't have to be that way. Nobody needs to die. Jesus, he paid the price for everybody. And all we need to do is say, yes, Jesus, my life is yours. Please write your, your name on my forehead. Put your character in my heart. And, and God's going to do it. All we have to do is ask and surrender. Uh, but there's so many people that, that, that want a designer religion. They want to do things their own way. They, they say no to God and yes to doctrines of men. And, and, and in one place, Peter says, doctrines of demons. And so they pursue their designer religion instead. And because they are sinners and they chose to take that on themselves and not give it to Jesus, they're killed by the very presence of God. So now if you think about this, there's actually not just two groups of people at the second coming, kind of, but but we can divide them even further into four groups. So we have the righteous living and we have the righteous dead. And, And so the righteous living are taken up without seeing death. They're changed in a twinkling of an eye. And then you have the righteous dead who are resurrected when Jesus comes, and they're changed, and and they go to heaven with Jesus. But then at the second coming, you also have this second group of people, and it's all the, the wicked living. And guess what happens to them? They're slain by the brightness of Jesus coming. And then you have the wicked dead, those who weren't alive when Jesus came, um, but weren't resurrected at his second coming either. And guess what happens to them? Nothing. They stay dead. So, four groups of people, and, uh, and then we have, we have this, other, this other question here. Who's left alive on the earth? Are, are, any, are any humans left alive on earth? No humans on earth. It, they're all dead. So, or either, either dead or they're taken up to heaven. So, there is this other scenario. Somebody said that Satan's left on earth. Let's go back and explore that in a minute but no humans. Everybody is gone or dead. And listen to this. I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void. Doesn't that sound a lot like Genesis? It says that the Spirit of God was hovering on the waters. The earth was without form and void. It was… Do you know what that word is? The Hebrew word is… Well, I'm sorry, the Septuagint. The Greek translates the Genesis language and the Jeremiah language. It translates it into this Greek word abusos. Say that word with me, abusos. Isn't that a great word? (laughs) So, uh, abusos, it just means uh, the bottomless pit. It means that, that something is desolate, without purpose, and it's translated the bottomless pit several times. Um, So, let's just keep reading. Jeremiah 4, 23, it says, I beheld... um, the earth was without form and void, and the heavens, they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled, and all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I beheld, and indeed the fir- fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down in the presence of the Lord by His fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be desolate, yet I will not make a full end." 
spiritual Babylon at this point, you know, the whole, the whole uh, war thing that's happening in, in Revelation, it's done. There's no more war happening at this point. Jesus' second coming ends spiritual Babylon. It is brought to an end. The whole world ends up in ruins. All the dreams, all the ambitions, all the selfishness, it's finally over. The pride, the greed, everything is over. The world is done. And everything really does come to an end, except God says, I will not make a full end. There's something else going on. It's not that everybody that ever lived is wiped out. There's still a Noah and his family in this situation, right? There's still a group of people that God has saved, and he's taken them to heaven. He hasn't made a full end. He still has the saints in heaven. But in the meantime, the wicked are dead. Their bodies are right there laying on the planet, sleeping that sleepless or that dreamless sleep of death. And Isaiah says it this way in, verse, in chapter 24, "'It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high and the host of exalted ones and on the earth the kings of the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and will, shut up, uh, and will be shut up in the prison. After many days they shall be punished.'" That word, the pit, guess what that word is? Abusos. Yeah, it's that, that great Greek word. So they shall be gathered into the abusos, the the formless void they shall be gathered into. And what, is it, what else does it compare it with? It's the pit and the, the prison. Do you remember I said something about Satan being released from prison? We'll get to that in just a minute. So this abyss, this all, all of the wicked, and, and it's not just the wicked, but it's also the, the um, well, what does it say? The powers... The, 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 will punish on high the host of exalted ones, right? So there's something about spiritual beings in this mix, the wicked angels. And listen to what God says to Lucifer, because God made a promise to Satan in Isaiah 14. He said, you will not be joined with them in burial. When all of the wicked are killed with the brightness of Jesus coming, um, they are laid to rest. They get to sleep. But Satan, there is no rest for that wicked one. It says, you will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land and slain your people. Lucifer doesn't get to die, not yet. God has something planned for him. And, and he ends up in this formless void of a planet that's just desolate, nobody alive. And because he has nobody left to tempt, no, nobody to govern, no subjects, no one to work with, it's all over he is in probably the worst prison ever, solitary confinement. Have you heard about that? It is, it's, it's like torture, horrible stuff. And this is where Satan is, solitary confinement on a planet with nobody to play with. And maybe he's wandering around just, you know, left with his thoughts, and he's kicking kicking the dirt maybe, and, and, uh, and there he sees uh, the body of somebody that he tempted. And they, even though they had a, a few choices and they, they, they almost made a decision three or four times to follow Jesus, but they didn't. And, uh, and he, he really won the battle with that guy, and, and he became one of his subjects. And maybe Satan 
smirks a little bit, and maybe he kicks another um, clod of dirt, and he, and he sees the remains of a, of a woman there. And uh, she knew what the Bible said, but she decided that eh, God's not all that fussy, and the devil smiles because he knows he did that. It doesn't matter if you really follow Jesus, he told her. One religion's just as good as another. But then as he's, as he's walking, he's thinking about all the different experiences he has, and, and he thinks of somebody else. Maybe it's you. He thinks about somebody else, and he realizes that uh, he didn't win the battle with them, that they surrendered to Jesus. They made a decision before Jesus came, and that person, they're not there on the ground anymore. They're not, they're not on earth anymore. And he gets frustrated, frustrated that he lost the battle. And over and over and over again, he's reminded that he lost. He lost to Jesus. Just, just think about this. When the devil reviews his career, where are you going to be in his memory? Where would you like to be in his memory? The Bible says the devil goes to prison for a thousand years. Revelation 20, 1 through 3, I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit. Guess what that word is? The abusos. The key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. I like that one. What kind of chain? (laughs) A great chain. This is a big chain. This is a, a significant chain, and it's got a purpose He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he would deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. There it is, Satan imprisoned, bound in great chains to the earth. Nobody to tempt, nothing to do but think about his rebellion against God and the impending judgment that's going to come. But do you see that little um, scenario? Uh, first, Satan is locked up in the bottomless pit, this broken down world, um, but, but then it says he's released for a little while. How is the devil released? Well, if he's bound because there are no people to tempt, he's released when the wicked come back. Because the Bible says there's going to be, there's going to be a time when the wicked come back. All right, let's just put this on a timeline. At the second coming, the first resurrection happens, the righteous go to heaven, and the wicked are slain with the brightness of his coming. Then there's a thousand years. The devil is bound on the abusos, the, the voidless earth, the formless earth, the void of earth, I should have said. Um, and and at, this, at the same time in heaven, the righteous get to examine the books, examine the record of God's actions. And so, the, the, the big question is what happens next? What happens after the thousand years are finished? This released for a little while moment. I'm going to show you uh, an interesting sequence of events, and I want to tell you that the righteous don't stay in heaven a thousand years in heaven, and then, we, and then we do something. Matthew chapter 5, chapter, uh, verse 5, Jesus made this promise, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This does not say that the meek will conquer the earth. 
because conquering is something that Satan does. Inheritance is something that God promises. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So when does this happen? When do they get to inherit the earth? In Revelation 21, just after that thousand-year description in Revelation 20, we get this description of what happens after that. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You know, the world has always been our home. This is the place that God designed us to live in. He created the world, and He and he put us here. This was his original plan. And then we gave it away. We said to Satan, we'd rather follow your plan than God. So we give it away to, to Satan. But Jesus, said, the Bible says that Jesus became the second Adam. He took Adam's place, he conquered the devil, and took possession of the world again. That's what happened at the cross. But, but uh, the devil still has a hand to play in this world, and so then you get the, the second coming, and the righteous go to heaven in a thousand years, and then after the thousand years, God fixes the planet and moves us back. That's what the Bible describes. And it's, it's only at this point that Jesus' feet touch the ground. They didn't touch the ground at the second coming, but when He comes back after the thousand years with the new Jerusalem, the Bible says His feet touch the ground. And, and feet are a symbol of ownership. When, when uh, Abraham in Genesis 13 was going and walking around, God says, wherever your feet touch the ground, that's going to be your land. And when Jesus comes back, wherever His feet touch, guess what? That's His land. He owns it. Zechariah 14.4 describes that moment. And in that day, his feet will stand on Mount, the Mount of Olives, which uh, faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it towards the south. Jesus' feet touch the ground. The mountain splits in half, makes room for something really, really big. And what's it making room for? It's making room for the New Jerusalem. And you can keep reading in Revelation 21 and you get the description. It says, The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And, the me- and he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Do you know how long a furlong is? It's about a third of a mile, something like that. And, uh, and if you take that 12,000 furlongs, it ends up being 1,500 miles or something like 375 miles on each side. 375 miles. That's like from here to Seattle. That's a big city. Big, big city. And now this new Jerusalem is a permanent capital for the universe because God says that He's going to make His home here with us, that He's going to dwell with us. We'll be His people. He'll be our God, and and He's going to make His home with us. We will never be apart from Him again. All right, so this is what we've discovered. The second coming um, happens. The first resurrection happens. The righteous are in heaven. The wicked are slain by the brightness of His coming. There's a thousand years during which the righteous examine the books, and the devil is bound not able to tempt anybody. But then, at, at the uh, end of that thousand years, a city, the New Jerusalem, comes down from God out of heaven. And there's also a second resurrection. The Bible describes two resurrections. The first is the resurrection of, of, of life, and uh, Jesus says the second is the resurrection of condemnation. 
And so this second resurrection is the resurrection of the wicked when Jesus brings that new Jerusalem down from heaven. And I can imagine Satan is, uh, he's, he's bound, but now Jesus comes again and the wicked are raised and this new Jerusalem thing is there. And I bet this glimmer of hope comes to Satan's eyes again. And he says, there's a chance. And he, he, he tries to get all of these wicked people to go and, and physically take the city. Because isn't that what he has always done by force? There's war in heaven and that didn't work out. And then he's made tons of wars here on earth. And well, that's not going to ultimately work out because Jesus has won the victory and he's going to come and take us to heaven. And so now he's got this, this last ditch opportunity and, and he doesn't change his ways. He does the exact same thing he's always done. And so do the wicked. They follow the dragon again and they, they follow him to try to take the city. And here's how Revelation 20 describes it. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. You can study that Gog and Magog thing, but they're just big warriors back in the day. Um, And if you think about it, you could have added um, all kinds of other ones in there. Stalin and Hitler and, and Mao Zedong and, you know, however you pronounce that, and all the different other uh, amazing commanders of, of war, he's going to gather them all and he's going he's to light a fire under them and say, let's, let's make this happen. And they're going to they're gonna gather warriors and do their best to take that city. I think this is absolutely incredible. Jesus comes in all his glory. He comes with the new Jerusalem. He comes with the angels and nothing's being hidden. We don't have the separation that that we have now in this setting. It is, everything is out in the open. Right now, Do we have a connection? All right, good. Sorry, technical difficulties. Okay, so, so um, in, in, in all the glory, everything is, is amazing, um, and, and the wicked can see all of this beauty. And what do they do? Do they bow before God and call Him their Lord? No. Nothing changes. And you can imagine that for a thousand years we've been looking at the cases and we've been saying, yes, Lord, you've made the right decision. Yes, Lord, you've made the right decision. Yes, Lord, you've made the right decision. One after the other until everybody in all of the human race and all of human history has been verified and we can say, just and true are your ways, O King of Saints. Your judgments have been manifested. We can say that, but we still have a question because you know you will. You get to the end and you say, but what if they repent? What if, if we just, 
If we just showed them the beauty of this place, what if they said, Jesus, I want to be there? And let me just ask you this. If they did, what do you think Jesus would say? Yes, because, because Jesus is that kind of guy, because he's the God of mercy and grace, but they won't. The Bible says they won't. They have made their decision, and they will not turn back from it. They are following the dragon, that devil, the old serpent, as the Bible calls him, and they are not going to turn back. as though Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to bring them back just, just for a short time, and you'll see. You'll see that there is no hope. They are never going to change. And so the righteous are resurrected at the beginning of the thousand years, and the wicked are resurrected at the end of the thousand years. The righteous for life and the wicked get to demonstrate that there will never be a change in their hearts. It is a final decision they've made. And then there will be the judgment. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down out of heaven and devoured them. So God puts them out of their misery. The decision is final. They will never follow God. They will only be in misery. And so he puts them out of that misery. So let's review one more time. Before the thousand years, there's this, the second coming of Jesus, the first resurrection of the righteous. They go to heaven. They rise into the air and go to heaven with Jesus. The wicked are slain with the brightness of his coming. A thousand years goes by with the righteous in heaven, um, living a, a glorious life, but also judging and, and examining these books of God's judgment. At that time, the earth is desolate. No humans are alive during this time, and Satan is bound, unable to tempt anybody, unable to even die, just trapped with his own thoughts. And at the end of that thousand years, the city comes down from heaven. The, the um, Mount of Olives is split, the city um, descends, and the wicked are raised from the dead. And, so, and, and Satan is allowed to, to, to do his thing, and, uh, and he gathers them together for war. They, they try to take the city and fire comes down from heaven out of God, um, from God out of heaven, and devours them. And the Bible in Revelation 20 calls this the second death. See, there's the first resurrection and the second resurrection. There's the first death, a death that we all must die, and then there's the second, um, second death, the death that only the wicked die, the final separation from God. And then God does something absolutely spectacular. He recreates the earth. He makes a new earth. And you'll read about it in Revelation 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. There's going to be a new earth. Um, and, and this one is going to be, it's going to be cool because nobody got to see, no human got to see the first creation because they were the last thing created. But, but on the new earth, we get to watch. I mean, what's it going to be like when God's voice rumbles out and things start to change? Won't that be amazing? He is going to recreate the earth. In 2 Peter 3, and this is all over the, this is a real place, right? And it's all over the Bible. 
Um, 2 Peter 3 says, Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Isaiah 65, 17, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. This is going to be so wonderful, so amazing, you won't even remember the place that you've come from. And this is not like the, the Greek philosophy where this is a shadow of the thing that God is, is actually designing. That's not the point. God designed this for good. We broke it. God's going to make it again beautiful, just like He had planned. Let me show you a passage that we looked at the other night, Revelation 22. And He, he says, He showed me a pure river of water, of life. Clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Notice, the throne of God is here. No longer does God make His home, His throne in heaven somewhere out in the universe. Earth is the new center of the universe. Not because we're cool, because we're not cool. It's because God is so amazing, and He loves us so much, and He gave all of heaven for us. He made the biggest payment in the universe's history for your life and mine, and he's going to want to make, um, he's going to want to take out that investment through the rest of eternity with quality time with, with these people that he paid for so dearly. And so the throne of God and of the Lamb is there. In the middle of its streets and on either side of the river was a tree of life which bore 12 fruits, each yielding its fruit every month. If this doesn't boggle your mind, um, nothing will. It's this is a huge river, and there's a tree that somehow spans the river with trunks on either side and joins or something above, and, and, it's, and it's, got, it's got these 12 different varieties of fruit. And maybe it's one of those, like the, the apple trees, it's got, you know, the, the different varieties of apples on it. I don't know what God does. He's amazing. He can make it like this from the beginning, but um, somehow it bears 12 different fruits, and each month is a new fruit. And you know what the Bible says in Isaiah 65? That every month we're going to come back to the throne of God to worship Him. And what do you think we're going to be doing? Eating a new, a new type of fruit. I wonder what fruit it's going to be this time. And the leaves were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. When Adam and Eve, when they ate that first fruit, the result was a curse. But when we eat the fruit of the tree of life, the curse is gone. And in fact, Nahum 1.9 says, the curse will not rise again. It will never come back. God will have solved the problem for eternity. And then it says, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. Do you see this? These are the, these are the people that were there on Mount Zion following the Lamb wherever He goes and having the Father's name on their foreheads. And it says that everybody here will have the Father's name in their foreheads. And you know the promise is that God is the one who writes it there. He says, I will put my spirit in you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I will give you a new heart. That's God's promise for us. And all we have to do is say, I want that, God. I want that. If you've ever wondered what Eden was like, you're going to get to be there. You're going to get to be in the new Eden. And it's going to be completely different from what we experience here on earth. Isaiah 35 says, the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice, and the blossom, uh, and blossom as the rose. <laughs> Think about that. What we see as deserts today, the Sahara, the, you know, 
Death Valley, all these different places, they're going to be vibrant. They're going to be blooming and budding and, and all kinds of good stuff is coming um, through there. And it says, and rejoice even with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it and the excellency of, of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellence of our God. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Do you have feeble knees? Not anymore. In heaven, they're going to be strong and sturdy, and they're never going to ache. I have, I have uh, achy hands. When I was about 35, somebody, one, uh, uh, a physician that I was seeing, um, she, she did a little bit of examination of my thumb because I, I was having a problem with my thumb, and she says, oh, it looks like you're starting to get arthritis. <laughs> I was like, that's not a, a fun idea. And just this morning, just this morning, I was, uh, I was doing something with my hand and I, I realized it's, it's that same feeling, but not just in my thumb. <laughs> do, do you have achy joints? Not in heaven and not on the new earth. All of that's going to be gone. No more physical disabilities, no more disease. And it continues on, say to them that are fearful of heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance. Even God with a recompense, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Wait a minute, God is angry? Yes, he's angry at all the stuff that sin has caused. And in this day, he solves all of that problem. His anger, his vengeance, remember he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. In this day, it is paid paid in full. And we get to experience the results. Absolute joy. No more blindness. No more deafness. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. Uh, If you like the Olympics and you watch those guys that do the big long jumps. Yeah, that's you and me in heaven. We get to do that. Have you, have you seen a deer jump a fence? Maybe a fence into your garden, a high fence that you put up specifically to keep them out, and they just jumped it like it was nothing? Yeah, I, I see all these interesting strategies up here for trying to keep deer out. Well, maybe we should just put up a fence in heaven just for the fun of jumping over it, because the Bible says we're going to be leaping in heaven. Isaiah 65 keeps on going, and it talks about the kind of place this is going to be. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like a bullock, and dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hunt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. That means that, that you, can, uh, you can let your children out, and for days they could be gone, and you wouldn't even worry about them. Not a single thought of worry. There's not going to be anything that can destroy them. No, nobody's going to harm them. No problem at all. And that's just the beginning. In this world, we get cheated. We get our paychecks sh- uh, shorted. We do something and it breaks down or somebody steals it. We get robbed. Um, people push us aside as they're trying to climb the corporate ladder. But that's not the case in God's new earth. In Isaiah 65, it keeps going and says, And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of the tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. This is a cool idea. 
But you might be saying, wait a second, we're going to be working in heaven or on the new earth? Yeah, we're going to be working. God designed Adam and Eve for work. It was pleasant work, but they, he gave them purpose. Can you imagine a life without purpose? Would that be bliss? Would that be heaven? Would that be God's new earth? No. No, there's purpose in why God has you in existence, and that purpose gives you a reason for life. And so he says that you're going to plant, and you're going to build, and you get to live in it, and you get to eat the fruit of it, and and you're never going to worry about somebody stealing it. And it says, they shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. No more trouble. Nobody's going to take credit for what you did. God gets all the credit anyway, right? Nobody's going to rip you off. There's no point in stealing. You get to create things. God designed us as creative beings. You get to create things and enjoy it forever. Can you imagine the paintings that we're going to do in heaven? Can you imagine the arboretums that we're going to make in heaven? Can you imagine the gardens we're going to have? Who knows? What kind of house are you going to live in in heaven? What materials are you going to use? Are you going to be able to fashion pure gold and make a house that glimmers? Who knows? But God's going to give you the opportunity to be creative. And the best part is, and the best part isn't what you do, the best part is who you live with. In Revelation 21, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. If there's anything else in the Bible that, that you want to be true, it's this. This is the true thing. God is going to make all things new. Let me ask you this. Do you need this? Do you need, do you need a miracle? Something beyond what you can do for yourself. Little Tessie heard her mother crying. She was close to the door and, and she was listening. And so she heard something was wrong with her brother. And her mom said, the only thing that can help him now is a miracle. And so Tessie went into her closet, and she pulled out her little glass jar where she kept her coins, and she dumped it out, and she counted each one, and she had $1.11. $1.11 for a miracle. How much will your miracle cost? Without asking her mother, she slipped out of the house and walked to the drugstore on the corner, and when she got inside, the, the, the pharmacist was talking to a man in a really nice suit, and they were having this long discussion, and it went on and on, and finally she, she figured she would uh, try to put a down payment on this miracle, and she dropped a quarter on the, on the counter <laughs> to get the guy's attention, and the pharmacist said, honey, I'm, I'm busy. Can't you see I'm talking? Please wait. But the man in the nice suit saw that she'd been crying, and he said, it's okay. And so the pharmacist reluctantly turned to the little girl. 
What can I do for you, little lady, he says. Mister, how much is a miracle? My mom says my brother needs a miracle, and I want to know what they cost. The pharmacist lowered his voice, and he said, I'm, I'm sorry, honey, but I don't sell those. Well, Tessie began to cry all over again, and the man in the suit said, what's wrong with your brother? My mother said he's got something growing inside his head, and he, he really needs a miracle. Take me to your home, he said. And it turns out the man was a world-renowned surgeon, and he agreed to do an operation, and it saved the boy's life. But Tessie and her family were poor, and they couldn't afford that, that, that special surgery from this world-renowned surgeon. They'd never be able to pay the bill when it came. They waited for weeks. You know how you do when you're waiting for that bill to come from the hospital. They waited for weeks, and, uh, and it finally came in the mail. And they didn't want to open it, as you do when you know it's going to be a big one. But finally, they, they opened it up, and you know what it said? One miracle, a dollar and 11 cents. Do you need a miracle? Do you need what God wants to give you? It's already paid for. The beautiful place that we've described tonight has been paid for in full. And all, all, all you need to do is say, okay, God. Thank you, God. Can you put your name in my, in my forehead, God? That's all you need to do. He's, he's holding out his hand and giving you everything you could ever need. Today, we don't have that new earth experience. We still have our achy knees. We still have our problems with our marriages. We still have our troubled kids. We still have all of those problems. But God promises to hold our hand and to walk us through this life. And, and when the time comes, when, when Jesus comes in the end, He's going to, to give us all of those things, all of the things that we could ever need or ever want. What's the miracle that you need tonight? I'd like to, to invite you guys forward. Um, I'm going to pray here, um, right here in front, and, and I'd like you to come if you have a, a need. It doesn't matter. I mean, if you've got a, a, a struggle with um, a spouse, come on up. If you've got a health problem, come on up. If you've got some uh, other issue in, in your life, maybe a, a child that, uh, that you've been struggling with. Maybe there's, a, maybe there's something that you've been struggling with in your heart, uh, something you know God wants you to do or change, and, uh, and it's been hard for you, um, and you want, you want the Holy Spirit's help. Maybe you just want to say, Jesus, I want heaven. I want that new earth experience. I want the inheritance you promised to anyone who says yes to you. Come on up, and we'll pray together. Lord of heaven and Lord of earth, Lord of creation and recreation, we're standing here today and we're saying yes to you. 
We're saying that our lives right now are yours and, uh, well, we need you to hold us in this time where we experience trouble and pain and problems and the curse. And Lord, we're saying as we stand here tonight that we believe in the future that you've promised, the future where the curse is done away with, the, the, the problems have been solved, the troubles we experience will be over, the future where, where you're going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And we right now, Lord, we need your, we need your character in our, on our hearts. We need that transplant that you promised. We need the righteousness of Jesus and so we ask for you to give us that tonight. And Lord, if there's somebody that's uh, struggling, maybe with a relationship here on earth that they just don't know how, how to solve the problem, I pray that you would give them wisdom. You said that if anyone lacks wisdom, ask and you'll give it to them as long as we ask in faith. And so we're asking, Lord, give, give us wisdom to, to deal with those relationship challenges that we face and maybe there's some health concerns that, that somebody here is facing. I pray that you would, uh, you would step into that uh, situation. And I know that you can heal, but I also know that sometimes you allow, you allow those, those health problems. And, uh, and so I ask that whether you heal or give comfort and joy in, in, the, in the trial, um, please be there in their, in their life. And Lord, there's, there's struggles that we have with, with sin or with change that you've invited us into, and I pray that you would give us courage and faith and help us to take the step that you've asked us to take. And I pray that as we do, that you would heal us of that sin and that you would cleanse us from unrighteousness. Lord, we give ourselves to you today. Everything that we are and everything we hope to be is yours. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.